Thank you, Greg, for leading us in worship and you individuals that serve with him each and every single week. I'm so grateful for you all. I'm so glad that you are here this morning and that you choose to be here to worship with us as we come together to study God's Word, to better understand God's Word and apply God's Word to our lives. I hope you have a Bible with you, something that you can preferably open up, if not something that you could turn on, and that you will join me in Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. We have been in a series of lessons from the book of Exodus. We took a couple of weeks off um, the last couple of Sundays for the resurrection and the celebration of the resurrection in the empty tomb. And this morning we are going to return back to Exodus chapter 7 as we continue looking through the book of Exodus of what it looks like and what it means to be set apart as God's people. So one of the big themes throughout the book of Exodus is how God has a people called the Israelites. And he set them apart for a plan and a purpose that he had foreordained. And how he brings them out of Egypt. And how he sends them to the promised land. It's a story about what it looks like to be set apart. So even in 2023, we have been set apart. We have been in a process of being sanctified as God's people. And so it's good for us to think about what this looks like and what this means to be set apart for the plan and the purposes of God. Now, I realize it's been a couple of weeks, so some of you may have forgotten about what has happened previously in the book of Exodus. So let me just take you back a couple of chapters. you got Exodus chapter 5, and Moses is coming back into Egypt. He's been on the backside of the desert in the land of Midian. He's coming back to Egypt with a message. God said, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh, and you're going to go in, and you're going to tell Pharaoh, hey, God said, let my people go, the Israelites go, and the idea is that Pharaoh Pharaoh is then going to release them, and they can leave Egypt, head to the promised land happily ever after. Well, you know the story. In Exodus chapter 5, Moses comes back. He's assisted by his brother Aaron, a few years older than him. He comes back, and he looks at Pharaoh, and he's like, Pharaoh, God said you're going to let my people go. Pharaoh doesn't say, oh, that's a good idea. Why didn't I think about that? Pharaoh's like, no, not going to happen. And instead, let me make life harder let me make life worse on all the people of Israel. So one of the big things they were doing was making bricks. And one of the big components of the brick making was straw. And so Pharaoh said, no longer will you be provided straw. Now you got to get your own straw. And you can go to back to Exodus 5. And that turned into a huge point of conflict because the people of God, the Israelites, are going, no, this isn't the way it was supposed to happen. You get to the end of Exodus chapter 5 and you see Moses talking to Pharaoh, Pharaoh talking to the people, people talking to Moses, and now Moses talking to God. And when they get to the end of Exodus chapter 5, you have this whole uproar going on because now Pharaoh is upset because they were trying to leave. The people are upset because now their life is harder. Moses is upset because he's like, God, I didn't expect this. God, why are you doing this? And you get into Exodus chapter 6 and you see God then come in and begin to speak to Moses saying, Moses... Did you forget who I was? I'm God. 
And the same thing that I told you when you were on the backside of the desert in Midian, that what I will do, I am still going to do it. So all through chapter 6, I'm sorry for the first 13 verses of chapter 6, he is telling Moses, he's reminding Moses, he's giving, he's giving assurances to Moses. And so he says, I have heard, I have remembered, I am the Lord, I will bring, I will deliver, I will redeem, all of these things. But then you get down to the end uh, in chapter 6 and get down to the end of this discourse between God and Moses. And Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me and I'm paraphrasing here, and Pharaoh does not listen to me. So then we come our, find ourselves in Exodus chapter 7. And if we can just try to imagine the scene. Pharaoh's not happy because the Israelites are trying to leave. The Israelites are not happy with Moses and Aaron because they see them as being the cause for their life being worse. Moses and Aaron, especially Moses, is in there going, God, we don't understand. We are in between a rock and a hard place. Pharaoh is unhappy with us. The people are unhappy with us. We don't know where to go. And when you get into Exodus chapter 7, and especially these first five verses, it reminds me of God calling the shot. What do I mean by calling the shot? Well, you, there's been some baseball movies before where that batter gets up there, you know, and he points the, he points the bat off in left field saying that's where I'm going to hit the ball, right? You have some people in the boxing and Miss martial arts world that they get up there and they'll say, you know what, I'm going to defeat this person and I'm going to defeat this person in the second round, right? Or you get even uh, maybe a little closer to maybe what we can understand, you get somebody at the pool table, the billiards hall, and you get somebody sitting there, and they say, I'm going to take this white ball, and I'm going to hit this black, this black ball, and that black ball is going to go into this pocket, and they call the shot. So here in these first five verses of Exodus 7, what God is doing is God is coming to Moses and saying, Moses, you want me to understand, I know what's going to happen, I know how it's going to happen, I know why it's going to happen, I can tell you this is all going to take place, and it is all going to point back to my Sovereignty. Now, sovereignty is just a big word that means his authority, his power, his dominion, his charge, his control of. And all throughout Scripture, we see God's sovereignty on display. And God shows us time and time again that I am sovereign. I am in charge. I have control. I have authority. So I put there at the top of your notes on the back of the bulletin, if you want to follow along there, I put down there, God is sovereign over it. And you can fill in the blank. You can say God is sovereign over your marriage because he is. You can say that God is sovereign over your vocation because he is. You can say that God is sovereign over your finances because he is. You can say that God is sovereign over your relationships because he is. You can say that God is sovereign over whatever it is that you have going on in your life. Now, how does he display this? Well, these first five verses really set us up for everything that is going to take place. These, these first five verses of chapter 7 is then what sets the stage, calls the shot, if you will, all the way through chapter 14. So everything that happens here from Exodus chapter 7 and verse 6 all the way through the end of chapter 14 is really just God saying, I told you so. So look at these first verses here in Exodus chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 down through verse 13 just for the sake of context. And then I want to take a step back up to starting in verse 1. And I want us to see together how God shows us his sovereignty. 
How he shows us his sovereignty, not just in these pages here in Exodus chapter 7, but then how God shows us his sovereignty today. Because sometimes, sometimes we in our humanity, we start to think that we're in a bind and we're in a pickle. And we start to think, well, I've got to figure this out. I've got to take care of this myself. I've got to figure out the solution to my problem. And maybe God this morning is just saying, you know what? Why don't you just trust in me? Because I got it. So look at what he says in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. They're evil. Every place they're in the word of God. They're always evil. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. Lord help them. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. So God's sovereignty on display. God's sovereignty as a means of reminder. God's sovereignty as a means of assurance to Moses is put on display in these first few verses of chapter 7. And the first way that God shows us his sovereignty is in God's will. This morning, I hope that if you take nothing out of this morning, that you will think when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the authority and the power of God, you can sum it up in three phrases. You can talk about God's will, you can talk about God's glory, and you can talk about God's way. When it comes to what we should be pursuing in this Christian life, it should be that we are pursuing God's will, God's glory, God's way. And so he shows Moses, he reminds Moses how he's going to bring about his sovereign plan of action. First thing he talks about is his will. So Moses is sitting there and he's kind of having a little freak out moment. He's kind of having a little bit of a meltdown. He's like, God, I don't understand this. God, I don't know what's going to happen. God, how are you going to handle this? God, you've told me this, but God, now this is the way they're responding. And God comes in and reminds Moses, Moses, remember the order. Back up in verse 2. Or sorry, verse 1. I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. God says, Moses, remember, I am God, and remember the order. I am going to speak to you. You will then speak to Aaron. Aaron will then speak to Pharaoh. You may say, well, Spence, how is that showing God's will? God says, I've got a plan. I've got a purpose for what you're doing. I've got a plan for how you are going to serve me. I've got a purpose and a plan for your life. 
And so God is revealing his will and saying, listen, this is how this is going to work. And not just that, but he also reminds them there in verse 4. <clears throat> I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children, out of the land of Egypt. When it comes to the idea of God's will, he has a plan and a purpose. And he says, I have an order of how I'm going to do things. And be aware that Israel will leave Egypt. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. The whole idea besides, behind sending Moses back is to bring his people out of Egypt. And so he's reminding Moses, do not forget this is my plan. This is my will. This is my purpose for you and for the people. And... His word will come true. That's what he's trying to remind them. That's what he's trying to show them. He is saying, Moses, have you forgotten what I told you back in Exodus chapter 3? Have you forgotten what I assured you back in Exodus chapter 2? Have, I, have you forgotten what I promised you back in Exodus chapter 4? Have you forgotten that what I said will come true? Why? Because it is all within the will of God. When I was much younger, back before all these electronics and all this silliness, you had cereal boxes. And on the back of these cereal boxes, they would put these codes. And it was always one of those things, especially when I went with, with, when I went with Grandma to the grocery store, she would buy the fancy cereal in the actual cardboard box. It wasn't the generic stuff that came in the, just the, the clear plastic bag. I mean, this was the stuff in the cardboard boxes. And so I always would gravitate towards the box that would have some type of a secret message. Some of you all have no idea what I'm talking about, and you are deprived, and I'm so sorry your life has not been fuller than it is right now. But the idea was, is there was some type of a secret message. Well, you had to buy the cereal, because it's on the cereal box, was a special set of glasses. And if you took those glasses out, and you looked at that special, that, that message, what looked like mumbo jumbo with just the bare naked eye, there would be a message inside of that, but you had to have the special glasses on to see the message. Are you tracking with me? So it's the idea that you had to buy the cereal and you had to get the box and you had to get inside there. You had to get the glasses. You had to look at the back of the box to find out what the secret message was. Sometimes we think the Bible is like that. The only person that has the secret glasses is the preacher or the Sunday school teacher. The only people that has the secret glasses is somebody of great higher standing. He has to be on the radio. He has to be on television. Somebody has to have this special standing. But the truthfulness is, it's not a secret. God's will for you is not a secret. God's plan and God's purpose for your life is not a secret. Now, you may not know it because you have not read. You may not know it because you have not asked. You may not know it because you have not pursued and searched. But make no mistake about it, friend. Make no mistake about it, brother or sister in Christ. God's word is his revelation to us to show us his will for our lives. So when God comes in and reveals his will, he's reminding us that he has a plan and a purpose. God has already put a plan and a purpose for Spence McConnell's life long before Spence McConnell ever was pursuing after God. And every single one of us in this room, God has a will. In other words, God has a plan and God has a purpose for your life. And so what God is doing with Moses is he's saying, do not forget who's in charge. I've got this, Moses. I have a plan and a purpose. The question is, are you listening to my plan and my purpose? See, you and I can get in this world, and we can start looking at this world, and we can say, you know what? Well, I think God wants me to do this, and I think God wants me to do that. And we have all these ideas out there. 
And then here comes the world. I shared at my dad's funeral service, walking into the fire station. And I, I, don't, I don't blame him, he should have, but walking into the fire station and telling my dad that I was going to quit my job in the oil field. And my wife and I were selling our acreage north of town. And we're selling out and we're moving to Ardmore so I can serve at a church. And him looking at me and saying, you have no idea what you're doing. He was right. Absolutely. But you know, if, we don't, if we're not careful, we start letting the world talk us out of what God is telling us to do. We start letting the world tell us all the reasons why it won't work. We start letting the world tell us all the reasons why it can't work. We start letting the world tell all the reasons why it's a dumb idea. And we stop listening to God. And God is coming to Moses and saying, Moses, I've already told you what my will is for your life. I've already told you what my plan and my purpose for your life. Do you not see the sovereignty that when God reveals himself, he is showing himself to us? God says, this is my plan. This is my purpose. Why does that point to his sovereignty? Because we don't have to come up with our own ideas. Because long before the foundations of the earth were established, God knew you, God knew me, and God had a plan. So God is pointing Moses back to his will and saying, Moses, just remember, I am still God. And I still have a plan and a purpose for your life. So you think about God's will. And one of the things that points us to the sovereignty of God is God's will. But then also it's God's glory. It is God's glory. So how does God explain what he's going to do and how he's going to do it and why he is going to do it? Well, if you look down there in the text, he reminds us there in verse 2, or I'm sorry, verse 3, he says, I know that Pharaoh is going to resist. Now, we're going to come back to that because this is a big distraction for a lot of time that people come to that. How do they understand that? How do they make sense of that? We'll come back to that oh about 12:35 but he's going to we're going to get back there okay all right we're going to get back there but what god is saying god is saying do not forget how my glory is going to be on display pharaoh will resist me but who is going to know that i am god he says in verse 5 the egyptians shall know that i am the lord when i stretch out my hand against egypt so what God is saying is, Moses, I am going to do something. I am going to bring about a certain of events. I am going to bring about a set of actions that the only people, the only people that can get credit, the only people that you can identify as being responsible is God. You see, Pharaoh will resist, but then Egypt will know that God is God and Pharaoh is not God, and Israel will get none of the credit. You see, sometimes we start to live for glory, and we're wanting the glory for ourselves. I want the glory for me. I do something cool. I see something nice, and I want the attention. I want the accolades. I want people to say, oh, Spence is so awesome. Oh, Spence is so cool. Oh, Spence has it all together. You know what? Sometimes we can get addicted, and we can start liking that glory. And then we start liking that glory that we want the glory instead of realizing the only thing that we're supposed to be doing is giving glory to God. You realize that's why there's a Satan? Because you had Satan at one point in time that wasn't satisfied with giving glory to God? Because he saw the glory and he said, I want a little bit of that. And so he started trying to covet. He started trying to lust and he wanted that glory for himself. To the next thing you know, he and a third of the angels rebelled against God. And God's like, no way. <laughs> rebelled. Because the glory of God was not sufficient. 
And we have this danger going on in our world right now. And so God comes in and God tells Moses, Moses, do you understand that my sovereignty will be on display, not just through my will, but through my glory. All of these things that he says, all these things that I'm going to do, just like I did in chapter 6. You look here in chapter 7 and just follow along. <coughs> he says in verse 7, see, I have made you. And then he goes on there in verse 2, you shall speak all that I command. Verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Continuing in verse 3, I multiply my signs and wonders. Then down to verse 4, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. And all throughout here you see God saying, this is what I am going to do. And you say, well, doesn't Moses get a bit of a credit in this? Doesn't Pharaoh get some type of a, a nod? No. Well, God, don't you think they should get some type of a recognition? Why? They're not God. You see, somewhere in this lifetime, we start to think that we deserve some piece of fame or recognition. We start to think that we deserve to be recognized and to be liked and to be applauded and lauded by people. We start to think that I deserve to be known and to be renowned. So, we start acting silly and making silly videos to put on social media so silly people will like our silly videos. Because that's how we find affirmation. Is how many silly people watch our silly videos. Or we start making silly comments on social media and then we start looking at the comments that people made to our comment about social media and how many times it was liked or how many times it was reposted or how many times it was interacted with. And so we start finding our affirmation and we start getting our identity built upon what other people say about us. And then we get sucked into this cycle where my value and my self-worth is based upon your opinion of me. And then all we are doing, it's a race to the bottom because now I become just a dancing puppet trying to please the fickleness of your heart instead of living for the glory of God. And you get into a school system and all these students are there and they're all just trying to be more popular than the next one. And they're just trying to be more liked than the next one. And they're competing for the opinions of other people. And we say how silly it is for school people. And then we as adults, we get into that system. And now it all becomes about our possessions. And it becomes about our projecting of our image. And it becomes about who people think that we are and how people think that we are. And it doesn't matter if I'm 90% in debt. As long as I have cool toys and I have cool places and I have a lot of fun, that's all that matters. Because I want people to think well about me. Do you think it's any surprise? Do you think it's any surprise that when it comes to the glory in our lives, we can either give glory, we can receive glory, and we can model glory. But when it comes to our lives and someone is to walk into your house, have you ever thought about the four most prominent things that are in most houses? You may disagree with me on this, and that's fine. In my humble opinion, my sanctified imagination, the most four prominent things that are in most people's homes is a refrigerator, a television, Probably the bed that you sleep in and your sofa. Now you think somebody just comes in, a stranger off the street, and they come in and they look at your house and they look at what is the most prominent thing in the house? A refrigerator. Give glory to my belly. My TV. Give glory to whatever's on the black screen. My sofa. Give glory to my laziness. Or my bed. Give glory to my slumber. 
I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. I'm just saying that sometimes we start to get our priorities out of, out of kilter. And God is coming and looking at Moses and saying, Moses, do not forget I am sovereign. So when my sovereignty, not only will my will, my plan, and my purpose, but my glory will be seen. <coughs> Both of those Pharaoh is saying, no, that's not going to happen. No, that's not going to work. And yet God reveals his sovereignty over and over again. You think about the glory of God that is shown whenever God saves a wretched sinner from hell. Who gets the credit? God. Who gets the credit that you have breath right now to breathe? God. Who gets the credit that you have a Bible in a language that you can understand and reveal God's word to you? God. So you have God's will, you have God's glory, but then also God reminds Moses of God's way. How is he going to do it? So he says, Moses, do not forget I have a plan and a purpose. I have a will for what is going to happen. Do not forget that I'm going to be doing this for my glory. Not for your, mo not for your glory, Moses, not for the Israelites' glory, but for my glory. And I am going to do it my way. So notice how he frames it. Here in the text, in verse 3, he says, I multiply my signs and wonders. There are things that he's going to do that can only be attributed to God. In fact, you're going to see the next ten plagues that come along. The first plague that comes along, the magicians are able to do that. That's what the snakes were, right? That's what the snakes were later on in, in, in chapter 7 and, and verse 8 down through verse 13. It's the snakes. Moses throws his staff down, and the other guys go, oh, we can do that. I don't know how they did that, okay? That's demonic, my opinion. Throw the sticks down, they all become snakes. That's a good time to run. They all just stick around, whatever. And then you get to the first plague. The first plague is the water turned to blood. And here comes the magicians, and they do the same thing. The second plague is the frogs. And they got so many frogs, they're piling up frogs. And Pharaoh's Egyptian magicians are able to do the same thing. Until you get to chapter 8 and verse 19, and then the, Pharaoh, or the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. See, there are some things that God is going to do in our lives that only he can take the credit for. That only he can get the glory for. And God says, I have a way that I'm going to bring about my will. I have a way that I'm going to bring about my glory. And part of it is through the signs and the wonders being done. And you know, there's some things that God just brings about that you say, how in the world could that have ever happened? God. God. God has a way. God has a way of doing things and not just that. But also, God's way involves favor and judgment. Favor and judgment. If you look there in verse 5, no, sorry, verse 4. I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host of my people, the children, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. God says, you know what? These people of Egypt, they've had an opportunity. They have oppressed my chosen people. And so therefore, they will receive some level of judgment as I bring my people out. But here in this text, you see that there is both favor and mercy. Was there something special about the Israelites that deserved God's favor? No. God chose a man named Abram. Went to Abram and said, Abram, this is what I'm going to do for you. Abram believed God and God counted as his righteousness. 
And from Abram you went to Isaac, and from Isaac you went to Jacob, from Jacob you went to the twelve tribes, and from the twelve tribes you're now coming to this massive nation, this massive group of people known as the, the Israelites, and now God is showing favor to them, not because of something they had done, deserving of their merit, but because God was showing them mercy. And one of the things that if you listen to R.C. Sproul very much, he talks about the difference between mercy and justice. And it's one of the things that is difficult, and for me, there's difficult to understand because so many times I think that everybody deserves mercy. But the beauty about mercy is that mercy is a, one of the things that is a prerogative of God. And see, when you come to this picture and you have the, the Egyptians and you have the Israelites, both of them had sinned against God. Both of them had denied the authority of God. Both of them had rebelled against God. But to one nation he gave mercy, to the other nation he gave justice. Does that make God any less God? No. That's what he talks about in the book of Hebrews when he's talking about Jacob and Esau and that one got justice and the other one got mercy. You see, sometimes we come into this world and we start to think, well, God, I am owed, or God, I deserve, or God, because of them. And we forget of the mercy of God and that by the grace of God, we are what we are. So let's just come back to what many of times we consider to be the offering for the distraction in the passage. Verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So here's how the question comes. Preacher, so if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, how can he then hold Pharaoh accountable? Or, another question like this, Preacher, if he hardened Pharaoh's heart, then Pharaoh had no choice. And isn't that kind of mean for God to do that to someone? Maybe you've heard it said another way. Think back to Exodus chapter 5. In verse 2, it says, But Pharaoh said, Moses has come in, says, Thus saith the Lord of God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. You see, Pharaoh had a chance back in chapter 5. He had a chance to say, you know what? All right, God is God. I am not God. You can just imagine that Pharaoh, as he's coming up in the ranks, and he has all these Jewish people there, all these Israelites. Pharaoh can't be ignorant and say, well, I have no idea where they came from. I have no idea how they got here. I have no idea what the purpose is. And if you think back in Exodus chapter 2, Pharaoh had been in such a uh, despise of them that he had tried to have them all killed. Remember when he had all the males and he said to the, 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 the midwives, kill the males because we can't let the nation get any bigger? Pharaoh knew about the people. Pharaoh knew about their God. And Pharaoh was in direct opposition to them. So you get here in chapter 7 and it says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So does God just come upon an innocent person and turn their heart away from God? No. Because his heart wasn't innocent. His heart was already hardened against God. I take it as God is just saying, this is what you want, then this is what you will have. Hold your finger here in Exodus chapter 7. Let me give you a modern example of this in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, a very... <coughs> 
A very apropos passage for where we're at this morning. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 18, this is what Paul writes. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Now let's just think about this in the context of Moses and Pharaoh. God, or Pharaoh knew there was a God. And he knew that God had revealed himself, and Pharaoh said, I am not going to turn to this God. Verse 20, Romans chapter 1, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And then the passage continues on. But it says that there's these people, Paul is saying, there's these people in this world that they know there is a God and they know this God has authority over them and they decide to deny and rebel against God's authority. Pharaoh, Exodus 1. So what does God do? Still in Romans chapter 1. So what does God do? Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to the impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Skip down. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28. And since they did not seem fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And you can see in that passage that God says, listen, I'm going to show myself, I'm going to reveal myself, and when you turn away from me, you're going to find yourself in a dark, cold place. In a hard, dark place. So when it comes down here to Exodus chapter 7, and it says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. You're going to see that again. You're going to see that passage again. And you're going to see it within the plagues. The plague is going to happen. In fact, it says there in verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. You're going to see this again. And if you and I aren't careful, we'll start to think, well, God's being a big meanie, and God's not being fair, and God's not being nice, and God's not doing the way he should do it, and we're going to hold God in judgment because of what God is doing. May I refer you back to the sovereignty of God. It's God's will. It's God's glory. And it's God's way. There is no way that you and I can fully understand exactly everything that God is doing. But we do understand that what God is doing is beyond what we can comprehend. Let me give you an example of this. In Isaiah 55 and verse 8, it says it like this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We can settle on the idea that it is God's will for God's glory in God's way. We say, well, so how do we say, how do we reconcile that? We don't have to reconcile it. God loved you so much that he knew you couldn't earn your way to heaven. And so he sent his son to die for you so that it might be possible that you can be forgiven of your sins if you placed your faith and trust in Jesus. And today, you can confess your sins, repent of your sins, cry out for salvation, and be forgiven. That doesn't make sense. Why would God do such a thing? Why would God bring about such a thing? Why would God orchestrate such a thing? Can you just imagine him looking at Jesus and saying, All right, Jesus, here's the plan. You're going to go, you're going to do everything right, and then you're going to die. And not just die, but you're going to die having been mutilated and beaten and scourged 
and mistreated and spit upon and all the evil things that you and I can imagine. You're going to die that way. And you can imagine, imagine Jesus looking at God and going, but God, that's not fair. It's God's will for God's glory and God's way. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us not come to the word of God and get fixated on things that we can't make sense of in our finite minds. Let us not come to the word of God and say, well, that doesn't square with what I think, so therefore it can't be true. You, I come to it and you say, well, Spence, is that, does, that, does that not bother you that it says that I will harden Pharaoh's heart? No, it doesn't bother me. Pharaoh's heart was hardened before Moses ever showed up. Pharaoh had already set himself up as a God. He had already tried to express authority. And when Moses said, here, God is saying to this, he like scoffs and says, ha, I am God around here. And if God chooses to use somebody that he has created and choose to give that person justice and not mercy, I have no sovereignty over God to tell him otherwise. Moses and the Israelites, they got mercy. Pharaoh and many of the Egyptians, they got justice. Both under the sovereignty of God. So then how do we apply this to our lives today? How do we think about the sovereignty of God in our lives today? Three quick ways and we'll be done. Prioritize the glory of God in your home. Prioritize the glory of God in your home. All through this passage, all through these first five verses, and all the way through chapter 7, all the way through chapter 14, it's all about the glory of God. God getting the praise. God getting the recognition. God getting the honor. Everybody understand that this is all of God and all for God and all because of God. Over and over and over again. And yet when it comes to our homes, is God the priority? Is God's glory the priority in our homes? For me, I'm not saying for any of you, for me, one of the main competitors for God's glory in my home, is pace. The pace of life. Because when the pace quickens, the spiritual devotions lessen. And they see, you know, we're just busy, busy. And what starts to fade our time spent just talking about the things of God with the family. Our time spent with just talking about the things of God. The time spent with just marinating in the things of God. How easy that pace begins to quicken. And next thing you know, our spiritual distance begin to lessen. Prioritize the glory of God in your home. Not just that. Secondly, teach God's ways through God's word. Let's use biblical words to talk about biblical things. Teach God's ways. How does God work? How does God reveal himself? How does God show himself true? How does God fulfill his promises? How do God bring all of these things? We teach God's ways through God's word. So it's essential that we use the Bible to say this is who God is. Why? Because we want to pursue God's will, God's way. Oh, well, God's will is for the entire town of Wilson to come to a saving faith and knowledge. So I've got an idea. How about we just sell tickets? 
and we'll make it a rifle, and we'll put it on a circus, and we'll do some juggling, we'll do all this, and that'll get everybody in the door, and we'll get them souped up on an emotional high, and we'll get them to say a prayer, and then boom, we're done. Let's pursue God's will. Let's pursue God's will and God's way. Let's do the things that God has called us to do the way that God has called us to do them. Which means, which means we might do something that the world goes, that's silly. So what? Or it means, it means we might do something the world says we don't agree. Good. It might mean that we say we are going to live for the sovereignty of God and act like God is sovereign than the world being sovereign. So that brings us all back to my central, my central questions for you this morning. Whose plan and whose will are you pursuing? Whose glory are you living for? And whose way are you following? Moses is there in Egypt. And he's having a lot of doubt and he's having a lot of second chance or he's having a lot of second thoughts. And based upon the, the logic, based upon the rationale of both Pharaoh and the, the people, it didn't make sense. Until God comes and speaks to Moses and said, Moses, remember me. So I don't know how this might hit you here this morning. But you might be here this morning and you're not sure which path to take. You're not sure which direction to go in. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do, but the reality is that that's not very much fun and that's not very, that's not very favorable and that doesn't get me a lot of attention. Or maybe you're here and you're just saying, I've spent enough time going in my way. Now it's time to go God's way. Let us not neglect or miss the sovereignty of God in our lives. When Greg is leading us and singing, Behold, our God is seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Is that your prayer this morning? Would you bow your heads with me?